Kirk Goldsberry, there are some episodes of ESPN Daily that I'm interested in just because I'm jealous. <laughs> and your passport, your travels, uh, what kind of stamps do you got right now? <laughs> well, thanks to our company and these last two features I've worked on, Pablo, I can say that I've been to Italy twice this summer, uh, mm. Germany twice, and uh, Spain once. Yeah, as I said, extraordinarily jealous of this expense <laughs> report. But but it's important to note that you're not just going to see the Colosseum. You're not going to see the Parthenon. You're going to see like monuments of a different kind. You're going to see people who may have literal statues in a decade or two. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to see the best current pro basketball players in the world, Pablo. And in the last couple of weeks, they have been playing around Europe in Eurobasket 2022. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the city of surprises, Berlin, Germany, for the FIBA Eurobasket round of 16, the battle between Greece and the Czech Republic. The challenge for the Czech Republic team how do you stop Antetokounmpo? Do you throw bodies at him? It's a very difficult matchup, this Greek team. I think Giannis Antetokounmpo is the best player I saw over there. He is not quite a Greek god yet, but his current trajectory is that of a future icon in Greece. Gets it to Antetokounmpo. Look out. That's the player that most of these fans have come to see tonight. And what he's doing here is trying to elevate the Greek program back into contention into the top of the European field. The handoff to Giannis, and he scores! That's more like it. And even though they lost to Germany in the quarterfinals, Greece was making noise. They went 6-1 and one in this tournament. What a pass! Throw that one down! There's the highlight we've been waiting for, and maybe the energy swing Greeks needed. One of the best games that, that we have seen so far was Luka Doncic against France, against Rudy Gobert and Evan Fournier. Doncic up, crossed him up. Fournier comes back, but it's too late. Doncic again. He's feeling it. <laughs> he goes off for 47 points. Doncic, he takes it all the way. He's got a chance for a three-point play. I haven't seen Luka play that hard. Uh, since the playoffs. Right. And I might not see him play that hard again until next year's playoffs. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was living and dying out there. These are the, the Luka Doncic bombs that we're so used to seeing. And now the chance once again of MVP. It's special because these people are, are watching their countries. It's just like the World Cup. It's like a very passionate fan base. Places like Estonia or Lithuania really impressed me with like a Cameron Crazy type of fan base. Going absolutely nuts mm. at foul calls, at made shots, uh, at block shots. It felt like a great college basketball environment, like super passionate fans living and dying with every possession. Of course, the pandemic is, is a character here. We haven't had a Eurobasket in five years. And a lot has changed, Pablo, in the last five years. And one of those things is many of the best players in pro basketball are European-born. The gold medal Eurobasket is among the most coveted awards that any basketball player on planet Earth can get. Outside of NBA, MVPs, All-Stars, championships, the Eurobasket crown is a, a thing that, that these guys will be able to brag about for the rest of their lives. 
When I was growing up watching basketball and becoming obsessed with the NBA in the 90s, the idea that a really good player would brag about winning a gold medal at Eurobasket for the rest of his life, that would have sounded pretty ridiculous. Because for one thing, there was no way that any other country or continent could even compete with the United States. Buying foreign at the NBA draft, as it were, was not something to be especially proud of at the time. And also for another thing, I had no idea what Eurobasket even was. So today, we ask Kirk Goldsberry, the former vice president for strategic research with the San Antonio Spurs, to explain one of the oldest and best basketball tournaments on the planet, now in its quarterfinals. And we explain why understanding Europe is essential to understanding the modern NBA. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Wednesday, September 14th. This is ESPN Daily. Picture this. You arrive at your hotel. You have an important online meeting lined up with clients from all across the country. You have your laptop open, ready to begin, and the Wi-Fi is so terrible you can't even connect. These type of stressful situations happen all the time, but they don't have to. When you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you have access to their free high-speed Wi-Fi. So you can take care of those critical emails, join your meetings on time, and even unwind by streaming your favorite shows without having to worry. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. So, Kirk, when I was watching basketball as a teenager, the idea of the European player, like the Euro label was basically a pejorative, right? Like this was not a thing that you necessarily wanted to be tagged as. It was a thing that a lot of Americans, it felt like, looked down upon for various stereotypes about how they played the game. Pablo, I can't help that you're a jingoistic American basketball fan. <laughs> but there have been incredible... America first, Kirk, yes. <laughs> there have been incredible forward players in the NBA for decades. But I, I, I do agree with you entirely. I'm, all jokes aside, the perception of, of European players and foreign players yes. in the United States has been cruel and sort of insulting uh, at times over the last 20 or 30 years. But heading into this season, Pablo, where four of the top five MVP candidates are born outside of the United States, uh, fans of the NBA or American basketball have no choice but to embrace and accept that this is a global sport now. And many of its best players are coming from other countries. It's just a fact. There's no denying that anymore. Right, right. And so the Euro thing, right? Like what it used to signify was... In a word, it was soft. Like, that was the predominant notion. That was the caricature, wasn't it? I think it was. And then guys kind of beat that out of the stereotypical American snob. You know, Dirk Nowitzki is a FIBA ambassador. Germany is hosting this event. And I think to me, Pablo, he epitomizes the recognition that Americans sort of, the wake-up call that Americans had in the early 2000s. Oh, my God. These European guys are not soft. They're as tough as they get, and they're going to win championships in the NBA. Yeah, Dirk was speaking, I believe, at a press conference. Was it last week in Milan, Kirk, where he was reflecting on, like, the grand arc of not just his career, but the trajectory of basketball and Europe and the NBA in general? 
That's exactly right. And then I asked him about, you know, how European basketball, what are the mechanisms for this change? Can you please share some thoughts on why the sport has risen so drastically here? Maybe comment a bit more on how Europe is building these great superstars. Well, it's just the popularity has, has risen. And he used the opportunity to credit uh, social media. I think that helps young kids get excited, play the sport, start the sport. Then of Improvement course. in coaching on the European continent, a growing talent pool. At an early age, the skill level is really good. How they read the game is on another level. You know. But something that happened over the last 30 years since the Dream Team is these European players didn't just infiltrate the NBA, they changed it stylistically. When I first started in the late 90s, you know, the fours and the fives, they were big guys and they were banging, they were rebounding. And now the fours and fives can bring the ball up, initiate. You have to be able to shoot, roll, pass off the dribble. I mean, the, the skill level the last 20, 25 years has gone uh, through the roof. It's been super fun to watch. And I'm, I'm actually really proud where the game has gone the last 20 years. I want to go back to where you think this entire story really does start then if we're trying to understand exactly what the history of European basketball in the NBA really looks like. Yeah, I think, you know, international basketball has existed for a very long time. There were foreign players in the NBA in the 1940s. But Pablo, there was something magical in 1992 in Barcelona when Team USA, a.k.a. the Dream Team, won gold, led by Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Charles Barkley, and Larry Bird. When he retired in 2014, David Stern said this is one of his fondest memories as commissioner, and he likened the dream team to the Beatles, and so did the head coach at the time, Chuck Daly of the dream team. He likened to traveling with those guys as traveling with Elvis or the Beatles. And for me, that's a perfect metaphor because we know the British invasion and what that did to American pop culture. Mm. In terms of basketball culture on the European continent, I think the dream team is the Beatles, and they did change the way that basketball was perceived and played on the European continent in a drastic fashion in the summer of 1992. Yeah, now that I'm on the Beatles metaphor, I am curious who Ringo would be. Ringo is definitely Christian Leitner. Oh, yeah, of course. I think that goes without saying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it should have been Shaq, ended up being Christian Ringo Leitner. That's right. It should have been Keith Moon, and, you know, Keith Moon with Shaq, he's sitting there. But but hold on, though, because now that I see David Stern, the late great commissioner of the NBA, David Stern, uh, the Iron Fist himself as sort of this manager of a band. I am curious how much of this was all engineered by him and the NBA. Like, how much of this was a vision that they actually enacted? Yeah, I think he's a complicated guy. And and, and some of this was certainly organic, right? Like, basketball is a beautiful game. It's fun to play. Virtually all of us have played it multiple times in our lives. It is not exactly um, something that needs a lot of marketing. That said, bringing Michael Jordan to Europe is a marketing triumph. And I think the more people that saw people like Michael or Magic or Larry or Barkley play the game, the more they were sort of awestruck and the more they were sort of motivated to go buy those sneakers and hoop it up in their local playgrounds. So I I think some of it was intentional. David Stern was a marketing genius and his vision for the NBA since the time he started as commissioner in 1984 was to grow the sport. 
Uh, and I think it lent itself to growth, especially internationally, uh, very easily. But I think he deserves some credit for making that an intentional point of emphasis for the league, too. Yeah. So how long does it take, Kirk, for the the seeds planted by this truly unparalleled global marketing operation, the 92 Olympics in Barcelona, leading to all of these players, their opponents wanting to take pictures with <laughs> these NBA stars. When do we see the seeds planted by that experience growing and, and sprouting? I don't think it takes very long. You know, I think one of the big nodes here is 10 years later when Yao Ming becomes the first player drafted number one in NBA history to not have played college basketball. Uh, this is a player that not only was foreign-born, we had had foreign-born players before. Uh, Kim Olajuwon and Patrick Ewing became NBA All-Stars and legends, even though they were born far away from the United States. But Yao Ming developed his game overseas. Uh, and I think that, along with players like Dirk and, and Manu and Tony Parker, really established not only were these players coming from further away, they were honing their skills and their crafts in, in foreign environments as well. Uh, and I think that's really a sea change that starts between 5, 10, 15 years after the Dream Team and has only increased since then. Yeah, I mean, look, you worked for the Spurs, Kirk, as a vice president of the team. The Spurs were the team for so long that seemed ahead of the curve when it came to international players in general, but the European player in specific. When you look back now, because the secret, by the way, the secret's out, <laughs> like these guys are good. Um, what was the market inefficiency like in those, you know, first years after you realized, okay, there's a whole pool of guys who never went to college that we can draw from? Yeah, I think I, I just wrote a feature on Manu Ginobili as he went into the Hall of Fame. And, and, and my friend R.C. Buford had mentioned the first time that he saw Manu play was in 1997. Um, at an under-22 international event in Melbourne. And one of the things he told me, Pablo, in 1997, the Spurs had just drafted Tim Duncan. There were only four or five other teams scouting the event. Mm. Uh, this is an event that features many of the world's best draftable international players. And in 1997, Michael Jordan's out there winning championships. A very small percentage of the NBA teams are out there scouting the event. Uh, that's no longer the case. <laughs> you can't slip through the cracks <laughs> As no. an international phenom anymore. We already mentioned Yao, but Joel Embiid, all these foreign-born superstars now are pretty high on the radar. And I think the market inefficiency lasted from the late 90s and maybe 10 years, 15 years further. In the 2010s, almost every team was scouting internationally. Uh, and these players weren't sort of slipping through the cracks like they were back when Manu was playing in 1997. Yeah, I mean, look, I, when I think about the late 90s, early 2000s, I think of a couple of names, Manu Ginobili, absolutely huge among them. Again, Argentinian, but played in Italy. And I think of Darko on the complete opposite side of the spectrum, <laughs> one of the guys who embodied the whole notion of like, okay, overhyped, soft, bust, all of those pejoratives. But what Manu did in terms of the style that ended up overpowering all of that stereotyping that we were doing based on only a couple of examples, Kirk. How do you describe the Eurostep and the birth of it and what it did to the sport as we know it now? Yeah, the Eurostep really, I think, helped take the power from the interior of the basketball court with the big men, with the centers who had dominated the sport for uh, 50 years and sort of helped hand it over to wings and guards who were attacking people like Luka Doncic or Giannis Antetokounmpo right now people who start their uh, rim attacks outside the three-point line. 
the Eurostep, it's not a coincidence, Pablo, that it came from a soccer country. Mm. Uh, this is a very clever choreography designed to maximize the distance and direction a player can legally travel with their two steps allotted in the sport. Wait, 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 explain, explain, explain visually, Kirk, the soccer aspect of it and just the physics of the Eurostep for people who may be unfamiliar. Yeah, the, the Eurostep is essentially a two-step maneuver. The first step is, is a, a, a big step in, in one direction, usually forward. And the second step includes a major deceleration and a pivot sideways designed to get a defender off balance and create space for a shot, a finger roll, or a layup. It, it's a major pain in the butt to defend because it includes this major change of speed and direction between the gathering of the dribble and usually a shot near the basketball hoop. Mm. Giannis is currently just destroying opposing big men when he gets <laughs> so a unfair. running start because he has these massive strides. Again, that first stride is going straight towards the hoop. Then he slows down and changes gears, puts the ball into some other direction before finishing with a layup or a monster dunk. And here comes a Pedagupo. Drives hard and throws it down. It's nearly impossible to stop. No, he is so long, Kirk, that all that separates him from half court is just one dribble, literally, <laughs> and a Euro step. Here comes Giannis racing. Look at that speed. Giannis Antetokounmpo. And in the process, Giannis winds up looking like a semi-truck who does ballet. And the defender is left looking like uh, an idiot <laughs> and someone also fearing for his life. He covers so much ground on that Euro step, but he started at the three-point line. And that's the thing that just kind of blows you away that he's able to cover that much ground. Yeah, so it's, it's not lost on me. The Oz was nine years old in Athens when Manu brings that Argentinian team to the gold medal position by beating the United States, his mm. Euro step. That's right. Manu was really the first hyper-athletic wing to show the world on the highest stage, Pablo, that this Euro step was a great way to get to the basketball hoop from the perimeter. Ginobili. Oh, Ginobili with the move. It's oh. good. Manu Ginobili puts the Spurs up by three. Behind his back. Uh, and now Giannis, who's even bigger and stronger and more athletic than Manu was, has become arguably the most dominant interior scorer in the NBA and in the world because he's been able to leverage that same technique uh, near the basketball hoop. If he was 20 years older, uh, he would be playing post-up ball like Shaq was. Yes. Uh, but instead, he is facing the basketball hoop, changing his direction, initiating his own interior offense outside the three-point line with his dribble drives. And now, by the way, just to put an even finer point on it, like the Eurostep is, is not just part of an NBA player's like standard repertoire. It is an art that is practiced by like the best players in the league, like James Harden. I remember talking to him once, interviewing him, and he credited Manu Ginobili as the guy who he modeled himself after when it came to this specific maneuver. Yeah, and, and like Manu, he's left-handed. When Manu retired in 2018, LeBron James tweeted, congratulations, Manu, and, and thank you for bringing us the swaggiest move in the NBA right now, the Eurostep. Mm. LeBron uses it. Doncic uses it. Harden uses it. It's a fundamental of the superstar. And one of the things that I think gets lost in this simple discussion of the, the globalization of the sport yeah. is this accompanying sort of globalization of techniques and the things that are coming in to American basketball or pro basketball because we're welcoming in people from different cultures who approach the game 
a little differently. And I think Mono's Eurostep is, is arguably the greatest example of that. Dirk's long-range shooting from the four and the five position is another great example of that. They, these guys haven't just come to the NBA. They've elevated the NBA by changing and improving the style of the sport. And Dirk, I mean, again, that name that comes up, it does feel like it's not just him being great. It was also him winning a title, playing a certain way that kind of proved, again, because it's important to remember here, Kirk, like before he won that title, before Dirk beat LeBron and the Heat with the Mavericks, there were still like these lingering questions about, well, what is he really? What is is he really in terms of the history of the game? It's, it's the rings culture that permeates everything about uh, basketball discourse. You're nothing until you win the ring. Fortunately for Dirk, he won in 2011 and beat that super team, ironically called the Heatles. Throwback to our early discussion <laughs> right. about the, the, the Beatles. <laughs> uh, Mario Chalmers it, was Ringo there in this case. <laughs> Dirk was the one who really challenged Biggs to stretch the floor, be able to drive it, shoot it, bring the ball up. He was really a game changer. LeBron, who credited uh, Manu for the Eurostep, lost two finals to Manu and and Tim Duncan, no small uh, counterpart there, but also to Dirk. So the Heatles are this great group of three Americans, Chris Bosh, Dwayne Wade, and LeBron James and Dirk in one of the most triumphant underdog performances in NBA Finals history shoots the Dallas Mavericks past this super team. Novitski drives, goes underneath, lefty layup, banks it in. One of the most incredible comebacks in NBA Finals history. Dirk Novitski, the last nine points for the Mavericks and this building has gone quiet. Forever erases any questions about him being soft. Not only did he win a title, he won a title against those guys. And that's a huge part of his legacy. The Dallas Mavericks are NBA champions. The emotions of Dirk Nowitzki. What he's always dreamed of. Hoping to have another chance after the bitter loss in break. I want to better understand what Europe is doing right here and how it may hint at what America is doing wrong. Delicious meat nutritious. In the snack that packs of real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot, taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is not only are wonderful pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. 
So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with the smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is Hypnotic and Tequila season. Hypnotic Liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky. 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. So when it comes to how basketball in Europe is trained and coached and developed. I'm just curious, Kirk, like what do they do over there that is different? You talked about the globalization and exchange of ideas, obviously going in every direction, but what do they bring in terms of just their approach as you can understand it? Well, there's two things. One, they don't have AAU, which is probably the smartest thing they do is they have Mm. a better way to develop young players that's less about promoting individual skill and more about team concepts and and, and stuff like that. Uh, but, you know, when I talked to Dirk about it, he was very quick to say the coaching itself has improved here as well. Maybe the coaches uh, have gotten better along the way. I think, of course, that's a huge. Uh, you, need, you need the guys that mentor and, uh, and obviously teach these kids how to play the game the right way. If you went back to European basketball in the 80s and the 90s, there weren't a lot of 30 or 40 or 50-year-old coaches capable of training rising stars, phenoms like Luka Doncic. But fast forward 20 or 30 years, again, because of Michael Jordan's generation, people Michael's age or a little bit younger are now able uh, to coach and elevate the abilities of young people in these countries to get better. But uh, yeah, more than one person I've talked to, Pablo, points to America not having a great development program for young basketball players right now. Mm. And that might be just as much of the story as Europe having a competent one. Yeah. And so is there an obvious solution there, Kirk, for America to take to import from Europe something that they have just been missing the boat on? Well, there's a couple things that I think come up when you have this conversation. Everything from the 24-second clock, which they institute in Europe at a very young age, that players are taught that you need to get a shot quickly. And in American basketball, either there is no shot clock in some high schools or it's a different length, a longer length. That's been brought up multiple times. And then if you look at just the arcs of our best American players, they are sort of shepherded through multiple development ecosystems between the times they're like 15 and 21. They go through high school, AAU, college for a semester or two. And at that exact key window of time that they need the most critical developmental attention, they're being sort of hustled from one ecosystem to another. And that's not great for growth in in any domain, uh, particularly pro basketball. But I am curious, like when you walk up to one of these arenas, Kirk, at the Eurobasket tournament, the style of play from Luka Doncic specifically What's he been like to watch as he's in this specific tournament? How different is he playing here versus how he's played in the NBA as we've seen him on TV? Yeah, it's pretty similar. I mean, he's the best probably orchestrator in the tournament in terms of getting an offense going. Doncic gets the bump and he is going to the line and and one. And now the chance once again of MVP. 
and I say that with great due respect for or Nikola Jokic and Giannis Antetokounmpo, but, you know, to, to draw a soccer comparison, I've always compared Luka to Zinedine Zidane in part because he's very deliberate. Mm. He's not the fastest guy out there. He's not going to jump the highest, but he sees the game in a way that nobody else does. He makes the right play. And one of the things that I've seen with him this summer, Paolo, is just the breadth of his scoring package is getting wider and wider as he approaches his prime. This is a guy who can now score at the rim. The mid-range element is a big new piece of his game. He has a step back three, and he can get fouled as well as anybody outside of James Harden. And he has such a diverse way to score that almost any opponent, he's going to find a good look. Uh, and he's a heck of a passer too. So as a result, the Slovenian team is getting the best looks in this tournament. And that has a lot to do with Luka Doncic. Yeah, no, I mean, that is Zidane, like in terms of his conducting of the offense, also in the sense that he might headbutt a referee at any given moment in the chest. <laughs> that's right. That's another thing I wrote about. Is that the worst thing about watching Luka Doncic is that he is haranguing the officials the entire time. <laughs> How many times has he asked for a foul and has made layup? So many times in the pool play in Cologne, I watched the Slovenian defense play four against five as their leader was on the other side of the basketball court arguing a call with a FIBA ref. Uh, and that's not a good look. And that's something that other people, including Zach Lowe, have, have really pointed out about Doncic's game is that this is an unusual, all, all superstars lobby for calls. No, but Don just does take he, it to another level. <laughs> he keeps on saying, he told JJ Redick, our friend, that he's done. He's done lobbying refs. But I had talk with myself and I just say, this can't keep going. You know, it's, it's a really bad look. It's over, man. It's over now. I, no more, man. Then here he is, yeah, like doing it apparently per your reporting in Europe <laughs> as egregiously as ever. Don't call it a comeback. He is back to uh, haranguing the officials as much as he ever has. And in fact, all jokes aside, it's a distraction. It's beneath him as a player. Yes, he's too good. Almost every court he walks on, he's the best player in the gym. He doesn't need to be doing this. If he could tone it down by 50 or 60%, he'd still be arguing 10 times a game. <laughs> uh, it, it's gotten out of control, in my opinion. But speaking of these players being their most extreme selves at times at this tournament, what are you seeing from the other MVP candidates that may suggest something about how they could be playing when the NBA season starts? Well, both Jokic and Giannis have looked fantastic throughout this tournament. However, even though they went undefeated in the group stages, both lost pretty early in the knockout phase. Jokic lost in the round of 16 and Giannis lost to the host team Germany in the quarterfinals. And that's kind of surprising that I think that says more about the quality of this field uh, than it does about either Jokic or Giannis. One of the most interesting things I saw from Giannis specifically was in Milan in that group stage, this guy was making over 80% of his free throws. Whoa. It's by far the biggest sort of shortcoming in his game. <laughs> Wait, that's huge. <laughs> 80%? Yeah, it's a small sample size. But Kirk, I mean, fair, fair. Always keeping the analytics in mind. Um, but but the point <laughs> is, like, this was a guy who had opposing crowds in Brooklyn counting down the seconds on the free throw clock. Play 33 minutes. Because he was terrified, it seems, at times. Yeah, and you know what? Speaking of globalization, the Italian crowd in Milan adopted that counting, counting in English, <laughs> maybe for my, for my sake. Again, I'm not promising this is going to extend into the NBA season, but if I was a Bucks fan and I saw those free throws at Eurobasket, I'd be very excited about Giannis Antetokounmpo this upcoming season. 
Yeah, that is absolutely terrifying. But okay, we've talked about the present. We've talked about the past. I do want to talk about the future because the one guy I was dying to watch in this tournament is the guy that everybody is is dying to draft. I mean, introduce us to Victor Wembanyama, otherwise known as the French kid, as <laughs> the as giant he's been French kid. Yeah. And when I made my arrangements to go to Eurobasket, part of the pitch to ESPN was we're going to get to see Victor play against elite competition, people yes. like Giannis. Unfortunately, he was a late scratch, but he's still the guy everybody wants. And arguably, he's the most coveted number one prospect in recent NBA history. Uh, he is 7'3". That's his most noteworthy sort of trait. He's 230 pounds and he's skilled. He might be the most skilled person of that height ever to play the sport. He's still a little bit raw, uh, but he's the number one prospect for a very simple reason. Basketball isn't rocket science. He's very tall and he's very skilled and he's pretty athletic. Uh, so he's an exceptional defender at very least. He's got size. He's got reach. He can cover ground like Giannis in a heartbeat. Um, and at very least, he's going to be a great defender because he has a seven foot nine wingspan. Jesus. Um, but his offensive ceiling is also through the roof. It's a little more raw, but this guy has a chance to be an all time great pro basketball. Yeah, this is the guy your former team, the Spurs, seem to be tanking for alongside <laughs> the Jazz, alongside who else is in that in that derby? Oh, the Thunder and the Kings. And the Kings won't say they're in there. The Thunder are always in there. There's going to be quite a bit of people posturing to get one of those top four slots in the draft lottery this year because Victor is that unusual. I'm not saying it was related. I saw Greg Popovich at at, at the uh, Eurobasket tournament in Milan, uh, but he 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 did not get his first chance to see Victor play uh, there because again he was a late scratch. But yeah, the Spurs and any other team near the top of the draft is going to be praying for that number one pick a little bit more than usual <laughs> if Victor remains on this trajectory to be the best prospect we've seen in a long time. Greg Popovich has not gotten his glimpse yet. You have not gotten your glimpse yet, all of which seems to me like there is yet another expense report, Kirk, (laughs) overseas in your future. That's that's definitely right. We're going to need to go over to France and do some scouting together, Pablo, maybe do a podcast on the road. (laughs) Merci. Yes, thank you. Oui. Is that good enough? That's all I got. (laughs) (laughs) Better than me. Better than me. Kirk Goldsberry, thanks for joining us, man. My pleasure. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.